my study is uh, Challenges to Journalist Source Protection Law in Europe and Australia, and um, that will be somewhat uh, refined as, as you'll see as we'll go forward. The presentation tonight is essentially um, a PowerPoint presentation of my master's thesis that I've just completed at the University of Edinburgh. And to prove that um, we don't do these things alone, um, just a few acknowledgements first to my supervisor, Dr. Rachel Crawford-Smith at the University of Edinburgh Law School, who um, may be a good contact for any of you uh, studying uh, European uh, media policy in particular. But um, just a few of the people that have helped me put together this research this evening. So, in beginning my study, I had the notion that I wanted to, to, to compare the situation in Australia, which I'll outline um, later on, to, to what was happening here in Europe, um, especially with regard to the, the uh, cases that have been heard in the European Court of Human Rights. Now, I'm aware that I'm in a, a room full of journalists, but there are, are there any lawyers in the room? Yes? Okay. <laughs> Lucky me. <laughs> um, I'm going to try and not uh, hit you over the head too much with the case law, but it is somewhat inevitable. Um, the, the discussion this evening is um, something of a, a cook's tour through, through the case law and um, the relevant uh, jurisdictions. So I found that it was hard to find any legal jurisdiction at the moment where journalist source protection isn't a contentious issue. Uh, so one of my first challenges was to re re refine the scope of what I was going to do. I set out to discover the updates in this uh, current study and look at the tensions and possible problems and solutions in this area of law in Europe and Australia. A real concern for my study was the importance of the human rights context, which is so prevalent here in Europe and non-existent in Australia. Australia has no Human Rights Act, uh, no Bill of Rights as such at the national level. The jurisdictions selected for analysis, um, as you'll see in my slides there, Belgium, Sweden, the United Kingdom, and Australia are those which have most recently debated source protection law reform in their national uh, legislatures or have been defendant states in the European Court. So a framework for my study, all these things are best done by breaking them up into manageable small chunks. Started with some introductory considerations and, and really just looking at the current legal landscape which I know many of you will be familiar with um, for source protection in Europe. In part B, I moved on to case studies in detail of Belgium, Sweden, the United Kingdom and Australia. And then part C, just looking at some of the ongoing dilemmas that I found, particularly with regard to data retention and anti-terrorism law um, that are facing the jurisdictions in the, in the years to come. So, part A. As we all know, for a long time, journalist source protection law was an ethical obligation that was, that was not recognised in law in a lot of countries. Since 1996, the European Court uh, in Goodwin has helped shape a Europe-wide legal consensus increasingly in favour of allowing journalists to conceal their sources on freedom of expression grounds. This has been done through the Article 10 of the European Convention on Human Rights and applying uh, that article to source protection cases. We'll come and have a look at Article 10 in detail in just a moment. And as a result of Goodwin and other cases, there's been a growing number of soft, what we call soft law instruments. These are treaties and declarations of the Council of Europe and the like on source protection, which have since informed judgments and legal argument on source protection. I found that... Um, Coming to Europe in 2010-2011 to do this study was um, something of a bit of an electric time to be doing this work. Um, I began my thesis uh, two weeks before um, the WikiLeaks scandal of last year. 
and then about a month before the Council of Europe released its report, to December 2010 report and then January 2010 declaration on um, source protection law in Europe. So this study very much moved as I did it and I think that my work has a sense of that as we go, we go forward. So this was as good as I could do on PowerPoint to kind of illustrate in a pictorial form the... Um, the legal landscape as we've had it since Goodwin in 1996. We've got the European Court judgments that are, have been interpreting uh, Article 10 in various ways. We have the national laws in each country on source protection. And then combined with that, we have the soft law instruments that I've been talking about, the declarations and various treaties that uh, the countries in Europe have signed up to. So if you could just keep that as a, a framework, that's what we'll be looking at as we, we go forward, the, the interplay of, of those three branches. So when it comes to the European Court, uh, the instrument that you will be familiar, familiar with uh, to at least some extent is the Article 10 right to freedom of expression. It's in two parts, and I think it's important to note from a legal point of view initially that the positive right, the right to expression, is, is part one. So you have the right, and the right is then qualified. So you have everybody has the right to freedom of expression. This right shall include a freedom to hold opinions and to receive and impart, and that's important, information and ideas without interference by public authority regardless of frontiers. That's then subject to such formalities, conditions, restrictions or penalties that are prescribed by law and necessary in a democratic society. And it's really over the last 15 years that that phrase prescribed by law and necessary in a democratic society has been subject to, in some cases, extremely tortured interpretation, I would say, by, by the European Court. So we'll revisit that phrase as we go through some of the cases. So, Goodwin. Are we familiar with Goodwin in the room? To, no. to an extent? No? No. Okay. Well, I'll give you... Um, a bit of a rundown. This was an extremely long litigation that started in the United Kingdom about source protection and was really the first time that the the chill effect, this idea that if, if journalists have to reveal their sources that uh, those sources may not come forward or may dry up for other journalists was really given legal credence uh, in, um, in the European court. So Bill Goodwin was it was a journalist at the Engineer magazine, and I've got I've got the uh, the picture there because I think we we so often hear about the Guardian and the New York Times, and we know that it can affect uh, publications such as the Engineer. He was telephoned and given information that the Tetra Limited Company had financial problems. Prior to the publication, Tetra argued that if the information were to be made public, it could result in its customers losing confidence in the company. This may cause the company's liquidation, hundreds of redundancies. An injunction was granted against the publication of the story that had come from Goodwin's source. Subsequently, Tetra wanted to bring proceedings against its internal source for leaking information and applied for an order against Bill Goodwin to force him to disclose his source's name. Goodwin refused to reveal his source in the UK courts. And the case made it all the way to the House of Lords where disclosure was ordered on the grounds that Tetra had suffered a grievous legal wrong and that faced the threat of severe damage to its business and its employees' livelihoods. Goodwin again refused to, rename, uh, to name his source and was convicted under the Contempt of Court Act 1981 and fined £5,000. On referral to the European Court of Human Rights in 1996, it was held that while the order for source disclosure was lawful under British law, in this case the Contempt of Court Act, 
which we'll come back to later. The European Court held that the publication of the confidential information had been inhibited by the injunction so that the order for source disclosure was not necessary in the circumstances. Applying the Article 10, the court accepted that the protection of sources was necessary to prevent a chill effect. And this is where we get the famous statement from Goodwin um, that I've got there on the slide. And if you do any reading um, into this area of legal nature, you will, you will come across this quotation time and time again. It's protection of journalistic sources is one of the basic conditions of press freedom. Without such protection, sources may be deterred from assisting the press on informing the public on matters of public interest. As a result, the vital public watchdog role of the press may be undermined and the ability of the press to provide accurate and reliable information may be adversely affected. That was from the majority judgment in the European Court. And as I say, I really can't overstate the impact that that judgment has had um, in the last 15 years in European uh, cases of this nature. So Goodwin had that, as I've just read there, it's been restated in these landmark cases of the early 2000s um, time and time again. Um, all of these cases, with the exception of Nordisk Film in Denmark, resulted in journalists being allowed to keep their sources secret. So we see here a growing um, con legal consensus in the European Court to allow journalists to keep those, uh, those sources secret. Nordisk Film was, a, was an interesting case um, that I won't go into this evening simply because it's just too much detail in the time I've got, but it was, it was a case about um, involving um, uh, child pornography and the court uh, held that um, the information was uh, of too great importance to be kept from authorities. Excuse me, may I ask, what is the Sanoma Week BV in the Netherlands? Because we work for the Sanoma company and it's, all, of course, interesting to know that they've been to a high court for something like that. Yeah, sure. This is a case, um, this is the most recent case in the European court. Um, I believe it was June or maybe middle of 2010. And it was a case about, um, I'm a bit light on the details because I don't have them in front of me, but it was a case about a, um, a magazine that had covered an illegal street race like a, I would, I would call it a drag race in Australia. I'm not sure what you would call it here. Is it a car magazine of some sort? Yeah, it was a car magazine, okay. and they'd gone to cover an illegal street race. Uh -huh. And um, the police went to the offices of the magazine and asked that the um, the tapes that the journalists had got from the street race be uh -huh. handed over in relation to another crime. Um, and the, the case was eventually appealed all the way to, to the European Court where... Um, there was a ruling that, and I'll come to this later, but there was a ruling that um, if journalists are to hand things over to the police, it should not be done without first being um, adjudicated by an impartial body, by a judge, etc. So we'll come back to that. But that's, that's the most recent case. So as a result of Goodwin, we've had since 2000 um, a growing number of Council of Europe uh, declarations calling for a more rigorous international standard for journalist source protection. Um, 
and the most significant ones, if you're interested in following it up, um, I've got there in the red text um, the recommendation of the Committee of Ministers to Member States on the rights of journalists not to disclose their sources of information. Brevity is not a strength of these instruments. And the other one there, just published in January of this year, Recommendation 150, Protection of Journalist Sources. So these are the, um, the soft law instruments that are informing the cases that come before the European Court. And they're growing in number. Um, all of them, just about all of them, I think, um, I'm safe in saying, cite um, Goodwin and cite the, 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 uh, the section that I read out uh, just before. But um, as you can see, there are a growing number of instruments, at least just about one, one a year or one every two years coming from, from the Council of Europe to reinforce the notions in Goodwin. Okay, so... They were my initial considerations to open up the field of study. Um, and then I wanted to go on to a study of jurisdictions in particular. So with this, my question was, with this landscape of European court and soft law instruments laid out, the real test, surely, is the extent to which these instruments and judgments um, influence and shape international laws on journalist source protection. So we're going to go from the international plane now to the national level and see what our national governments are doing. The first one I've looked at is Belgium. Belgium... Any Belgians in the room? Ah. <laughs> Belgians regarded... Excuse me, yes. in this previous slide, did you, yep. did you actually mean international law or national law? Or you meant national yeah, national. Yeah. So we're going to go from, from the international yeah, plane now to the national. Yeah. So Belgium was my first case study. And I've started with Belgium because it's regarded as having Europe's most comprehensive legal framework on source protection. Belgium's a really good example because... When, and when I say good, I'm, I might say that even though I am a journalist myself, I didn't want to bring to this study a notion that all source protection laws are a good thing and that absolute source protection is a good thing. In this study, while I am a journalist myself, I have tried to stay as impartial as possible in my legal analysis. So when I'm using words like good, it's not necessarily good for journalists. It's just a good example to show the complexity of the law in this area. So Belgium is a good example because it's the most obvious one of how the European Court of Human Rights has shaped national laws and materially impacted on uh, the work of journalists. Belgian source protection law as it functions today has had a really slow birth and it's been amended over time as a result of various constitutional court challenges and European court judgments. The source protection legislation that was passed in 2005, you'll see there on the slide, I've got the Act of 7th of April 2005 on the protection of journalist sources. That's now the main uh, law in Belgium on, in this area. Um, it was, that law came about in response to a European court judgment that found in favour of journalists' right to non-disclosure. Since then, the legislation has served as a model for other countries working to reform their source protection law to bring them into line with European Court of Human Rights Standards and Council of <coughs> Soft Law Instruments and Resolutions. So I just want to take a look at this period between 2002 and 2007 where we saw major changes in Belgian source protection law. And the main case in this area was a case called Ernst and Others Against Belgium, which was one of many um, what I like to call search and seizure cases where police or authorities have sought to confiscate journalistic materials for criminal investigations. 
And in this particular case, in 1995, police searched the homes and offices of four Belgian journalists. The searches were done on the instruction of the investigating judge presiding over a prosecution of police and judiciary for a breach of confidence in relation to some highly sensitive criminal matters. Computer hard drives and other files belonging to the journalists were seized. In proceedings in the European Court, it was found that an Article 10 violation held that while the searches were lawful under the national Belgian law, the means employed had not been reasonably proportionate to the legitimate aims of the investigation. Now, that means that what the police had done, gone in and confiscated all these things, was not, in the court's view, a reasonable action, given what they were trying to investigate. The court took particular note of the large scale of the searches, performed in eight simultaneous raids involving 160 police officers. It also questioned whether other methods could have been employed to identify those responsible for the leaks. So this is taking the notion in Goodwin that protection of sources is something worth doing and we, that principle needs to be upheld in the face of, of, um, of other interests. What was really interesting about Ernst and others in Belgium was that it was not just a case about Article 10 freedom of expression, the the journalists also succeeded on an Article 8 ground, which is uh, under the um, European Convention, the right to respect for private homes. Because their homes had been searched, they brought an action for a breach of privacy. And that broke new ground for journalists in search and seizure cases, and it's since been argued that a search of a journalist's home can be a violation of of Article 8, right to privacy. So just to give out what else could could the police have done when you said you could have employed other methods to, to identify those. Um, I'd have to have the judgment in front of me to have a look, but it was a, it was a, the view of the court that what the police had done was extreme. In the, the in, scale, in, of the yeah, the extreme in the circumstances. Yeah. That, just kick in. yeah. When they do proportionality analysis in <coughs> Strasbourg, what they often say is, what else can you do to achieve the same end without intruding on the right as severely as they did? Right. Mm. They did in this case was essentially say, if you have search and destroy mission, which is sort of what they did, um, that you didn't need to do that in order to find out what you were looking for. So what could they do? Well, it's interesting that because the it's not clear to me that the alternatives were necessarily practical. Mm. But they, they tried to um, come up with what they think were plausible alternatives. These are ways of, of in a sense, they're only to make great arguments, but they're ways of saying, you've gone too far, you could have done this. And they do this a lot in, in all sorts of contexts. Um, when they, years ago, when the, um, the UK Army homosexual ban was uh, overturned in Strasbourg, they said, well, instead of having a blanket ban, you could have done a partial thing. You could have so this is just the kind of mode of analysis that they will use. And one of the really interesting things about these cases is because the litigation is so long over a period of years, that the, the, and the, the cases are so unique on their facts that it's it's very easy for the court to distinguish one case from another and one set of circumstances from another. And source protection cases cases are, you know, have a very very complicated factual matrix, and that's what um, can make this area of law so complicated. But this whole episode gave birth to the uh, Belgian legislation as we know it today. 
the Act of the 7th of April and the Protection of Journalist Sources, where disclosure is only ordered when the information is of crucial importance to the prevention of a serious crime that constitutes a serious threat to the physical integrity of the person and when information cannot be obtained in any other way. And they also define journalist in Belgian legislation extremely broadly. A journalist is defined in Belgium under this legislation as anyone who directly contributes to the gathering, editing, production or distribution of information for the public by way of a medium. That includes internet? Yes, that includes potentially bloggers, potentially sophisticated users of social media. This is controversial and under the 2011 Council of Europe standards just released in January, perhaps um, in breach of the standards. So we'll have to see... um, what comes of that, but that's uh, the definition as it stands at the moment. So as you can see, Belgium's a really interesting example of the way that this European um, framework currently exists because it's engaged with all the organs in recent years and, and we've seen what that's borne through. Is it, is, it, is it really limited to prevention of crimes, not, not solving, solving crimes? I mean, if it's if, because it's... Uh... Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I would just have to take the law on its face there. Mm. Um, and I might say that um, in this study, translation was an issue for me. Mm. Um, the English translation that I've got of this law says prevention of a serious crime. Yeah, yeah. So, I to believe. Yeah. So it would be worth having a look at, mm. but that's what I've got. Okay, so I then chose Sweden for reasons that are probably obvious to most in the room. Sweden has what might be regarded as the world's most liberal source protection law. Um, And I wanted to start with Sweden by looking at the sources of law, so where the law comes from. At the national level, rights to protect sources is safeguarded explicitly by the National Constitution of Sweden. The National Constitution of Sweden is made up of four acts. They are the Instrument of Government, the Act of Succession, the Freedom of the Press Act, and the Fundamental Law on Freedom of Expression. So you can see the the prevalence that it it really occupies there in Swedish law. It has two of its own acts under the the Constitution. Now, protection for journalist sources under this legal framework is both general and specific. You have a general protection of the right of freedom of expression under the instrument of government, and you have specific protections for journalists under the Freedom of Expression Act and the Freedom of Press Act. So you have what what you might say is two layers of constitutional protection. As I've just said there, every citizen shall be guaranteed freedom of expression. That's your initial protection under the Instrument of Government Act. And then the Freedom of the Press Act and the Fundamental Law of Freedom of Expression specifically applies to journalists. It says, a person who through negligence or by deliberate intent offends against a duty of confidentiality shall be sentenced to pay a fine and to one year imprisonment. The same punishment applies to a person who communicates false information on the identity of an author or source. Now, you might be asking what's the difference between the Freedom of the Press Act and the Fundamental Law of Freedom of Expression? The essential answer, the crude answer, is one's for print and one's for electronic media. Um, I found that peculiar, um, but um, I spoke with a number of Swedish lawyers on that, and and that's simply um, the way it is. The the acts in... in, um, in of themselves largely mirror each other. The, um, the sections and, um, of the Act and the subsections are largely identical, um, except for where it's relevant to apply to either electronic or print media. So, 
it's because of this framework that source protection case, cases in Sweden are extremely rare. Sweden's never been a defended state in the European court, and I really struggled in my research to really find terribly much at all written about um, controversies in this area um, until I came across this this case, Johansson and Delana newspapers, um, which I could only find in Swedish and I had to get a Swedish student at the University of Edinburgh to translate for me. Um, this was a case about, a really peculiar case about a journalist at a regional newspaper who was on the letters to the editor desk and had had uh, faxed, she was responsible for sort of going through all the letters that they got and all faxes, and there was somebody who was sending sexually explicit facsimiles to the letters to the editor section on their company letterhead and this journalist took it upon herself to contact the company of who the person who'd been sending this um this fax and identified the person to their ceo it's a really peculiar case are you familiar with it no yeah. <laughs> and um anyway <laughs> anyway so what happened was eventually um legal action was brought against this journalist under the freedom of the press act for revealing the identity and um and the journalist was dismissed And the case ended up in the Swedish Labour Court, where the majority held that the newspaper was entitled to terminate Mr Hansen's employment. The court held that Mr Hansen, in violating the Freedom of the Press Act, also broke the ethical code described in the judgment as the journalist's contract. The court held there were, not, there were, there were other avenues through which Mr Hansen could have addressed the problem and that would, have not, that would not compromise the author's identity, for example, direct contact with him. Mr Hansen argued that nobody else on staff would have accepted the task and her reason in addressing the chief executive of the company was so the action would cease immediately, as what you might say, totally reasonable. <laughs> the court did not find the content of the facsimile to be of an extenuating circumstance for the action taken, given the sorts of messages any newsroom can expect to receive from the public. Yeah. <laughs> The court concluded Ms Johansson demonstrated a lack of judgment and the negligence in her professional duties that her employer was entitled to dismiss her. Now, this was not a unanimous judgment. The minority held that while Ms Johansson had clearly breached the Freedom of the Press Act, she should not lose her job because her action was negligent rather than intentional. It was significant to the minority that the action was committed in an atmosphere of upset and anxiety, and they also found her to have a collective sentiment with other staff, even though she acted alone. Significantly, the minority also noted at the time that there was no such procedures within the newspaper's organisational structure to deal with this kind of problem. So, where does this leave us? One of the key advantages I found of a source protection framework that's rooted in an unwavering constitutional guarantee is that it provides journalists with great certainty, right? So the reason why there's so few Swedish cases is because everybody understands their legal rights. They're, They're plain for everyone to see. However, the dissenting judgments in the Johansson case made a really interesting point that judges in this environment will face a dilemma where the legal framework will, in a way, distort the facts of the case when you're looking at the legal values to be weighed up. On the face of it, I think we'd all agree that Mr Hansen was the victim here, but rather the eye of the law saw her as the offender, resulting in doubt as to 
the value of strict rules in this kind of situation. You'll agree it's a, it's a, it's an anomalous case. It's really quite strange. And I think it, it's a good example of showing us when you have such a strict legal framework of constitutional protection that you can end up in these kinds of bizarre situations when they when they eventually get to court. <coughs> this also the, the situation that Sweden's in also came to a head with the WikiLeaks dilemma of last year. Um, You'll remember that WikiLeaks was claiming that they had protection under Swedish law um, to publish what they were publishing in regard to the, to the cables. Um, and there were some questions raised as to whether they did have the protections that they were claiming that they did. Protections under the Freedom of the Press Act and the Fundamental Law of Freedom of Expression predate online news media. Non-traditional media outlets must hold a valid certificate from the Swedish Radio and Television Authority declaring no legal impediment to publication. Now, even I had to go to the Swedish Radio and Television Authority to get this checked out, but it's true. If you're what's classed as a non-traditional media outlet, you must hold one of these certificates. The only way you can get one is to actually apply for one. And that there are criteria that your transmissions emanate from Sweden, that you appoint a responsible editor, and that your outlet cannot be confused with any other. So the issue with WikiLeaks was, did they have this certificate? And if they didn't, would they still be protected by the constitutional framework in Sweden? Now, given everything else that's happened since then, and this was raised in November of last year, this question's largely gone unanswered, and the outcome of it remains to be seen. So the extent to which WikiLeaks does have this protection um, really... Uh, is still, a, is still a question. Um, Clint Handler at the Columbia Journalism Review wrote a really interesting article called A Swedish Shield Unraised, which is um, contemplating the avenues and possible protections WikiLeaks has or doesn't have. So I urge you to read that if you're, if you're interested. So future challenges for Sweden obviously are in the online environment and in data retention law. Um, how am I going for time? I've got a little bit of time. Um, are we in the room, are we familiar with the data retention directive or efforts to have data retention law introduced in Europe? No? Okay. So after the London bombings in 2005, at the European level there was um, strong motivation and strong political will to increase um, legal measures to track terrorist activity, um, specifically communication through mobile phones and internet. And what's been proposed at the European Union level is something called the Data Retention Directive, which is a European um, directive essentially about trapping communication information. Um, where, who made calls, where they go, um, what time they were made, in what manner, at what place and at which time. The data under the law is protected against third-party access and is only provided to national authorities and police in specific cases in accordance with national laws, which must be in line with um, the European Court of Human Rights. Now, the member states have been tasked with, it, with tabling their own national laws to implement the Data Retention Directive. So you have this EU-level um, edict where they say we want everyone to have data retention law, and then it's up to the individual countries to implement the law in their own way. Now, a number of European countries, Sweden included, have not taken kindly to this, saying that it's going to breach, among other things, journalist source protection rights. Um, there's also been constitutional disputes in Greece, Romania and Ireland over this as well. 
Sweden was convicted in the European Court of Justice in 2010 and fined for failing to implement the Data Retention Directive, and they've delayed a further um, debate on this legislation until 2012. So the extent to which Sweden falls into line with European law on data retention is also going to be an issue for source protection in the future there. So, the United Kingdom. I pretty much could have written my entire thesis on source protection law in the United Kingdom. Um, such is its level of complexity and history. Um, looking at the sources of law in the United King Kingdom, firstly, you have the European Convention on Human Rights, the Human Rights Act here in the UK, which implements the European Convention into domestic law, and the Contempt of Court Act, 1981, United Kingdom. It's the interplay and the interpretation of these laws that's allowed source protection rights to grow. Although limitations have been put in place by UK judges have been controversial and judicial discretion, the idea that the judge can say when disclosure is allowed and when it's not, is a really big issue in the UK courts. And the legal history of source protection law in the United Kingdom is characterised by extremely lengthy litigation. I'm talking eight to ten years in some cases. Um, in this section, I've argued that this approach has led to an extremely nuanced body of law that's sensitive to various fact scenarios that arise in source protection cases. But the obvious downside is costs and resulting in a legal approach in which outcomes are uncertain, leaving many potential sources and whistleblowers unsure if their identities will remain a secret should they leak information to journalists. Now, before we get to the Human Rights Act, the area of problem in the United Kingdom for quite some time, legal trouble, has been the Contempt of Court Act 1981, which says that no court may require a person to disclose nor any person guilty of contempt of court for refusing to disclose the source of information contained in a publication for which he is responsible. So that's the positive right. You don't have to disclose. Unless it be established to the satisfaction of the court that a disclosure is necessary in the interests of justice, whatever that means, or national security or the prevention and disorder of crime. Necessary in the interests of justice. Now, here is, in that phrase itself, about 30 years of legal wrangling about what that means. The first time it came up in a source protection case was in Defence and Guardian newspapers, when the House of Lords ruled that it meant technical courtroom justice, the kind of justice one gets in court. That was overruled in six years later in 1991 in X against Morgan Grampian, that persons can exercise important legal rights or wrongs whether or not legal proceedings in a court of law will be necessary. So this is justice in the broad sense, not just justice in the courtroom. In time, the view from Morgan Grampian, that latter view, has prevailed. And so justice took on the meaning of a very broad sense. And then we got the Human Rights Act in 1998, enforced in 2000. Since 1998, interpretations of the Contempt of Court Act and its phrase, in the interests of justice, have been coloured by the Human Rights Act, which gives effect to key articles of the European Convention in UK domestic law, including the Article 10, Freedom of Expression. This has impacted the necessary in the interests of justice debate in the following way. In Interbrew and Financial Times, 2002, the Court of Appeal endorsed the view in Morgan Grampian, this broad notion of justice, that made special note of the UK's obligations under the Human Rights Act to view the dispute through the lens of the European Convention. So since 1998, there's been an increasing judicial consciousness of the role Goodwin and the European Court plays 
states in UK source protection cases. So, has the Human Rights Act made a difference to source protection law in the United Kingdom? The jury is very much still out on this. Um, whether or not Goodwin, and I think it's somewhat ironic that Goodwin actually came from the United Kingdom in the first place, has made any difference um, in, in the United Kingdom is, is really a, um, a topic that's up for debate. You have a really awkward um, journey reading the UK cases because they are either pre or post Human Rights Act. Um, so pre this very um, uh, this idea that um, uh, that the European um, Convention of Human Rights was something in Strasbourg that didn't so directly infect, uh, affect UK law to uh, to this post uh, human rights world where um, where the convention rights are very much um, interpreted as part of domestic law. So there's been some really interesting work done in this area by Fennick and Philipson in their book. Media Law and the Human Rights Act 2006, which sadly is a little bit out of date, but it's a really good beginner's guide. Um, and they have argued that the Human Rights Act has actually made not much of a difference at all when it comes to source protection in the United Kingdom. They've argued that when you're weighing up the chill effect on the media versus tangible interests, financial interests, property and other private interests, UK judges have favoured the more tangible commercial interest over the journalist's right to freedom of expression. And their argument, the, the case that they use to support their argument in large part is Ashworth and Ackroyd, but also Interbrew, um, which eventually on appeal to the um, European Court became known as Financial Times against the United Kingdom. Um, again, very recent, as you'll see, 2009. This case concerned an order against four newspapers, the Financial Times, the Times, the Guardian, the Independent and Reuters, to disclose their original copies of a leaked document belonging to a Belgian beer company, Interbrew, about the contemplated takeover of South African breweries. In UK court proceedings, disclosure was ordered. Lord Justice Sedley said, public interest in protecting the source of such a leak, in my judgment, is not sufficient to withstand the countervailing public interest in letting Interbrew seek justice in the courts against the source. So that's evidence that, the kind of evidence that Fennick and Philipson have used in their argument saying that Despite this increased consciousness of human rights, really the UK judges have continued to come down on the side of these commercial, these private, these more tangible interests rather than the journalist's right to source protection. When the case was appealed to the European Court in 2009, the journalists essentially won. The European Court upheld the journalist's right to keep the sources a secret, citing the principles in Goodwin and various European soft law instruments on journalists' rights. In addition to overturning the UK judgment, the European Court also refined several principles that had arisen since Goodwin 15 years earlier. Someone described Financial Times to me as a follow-up to Goodwin, Goodwin Part 2, which I think is a really good way of putting it. So there was a few... I guess you might say that there was a few things discussed in Financial Times that weren't discussed in Goodwin. In particular, the significance of the behaviour of the source, whether the source had behaved in a malicious way or not, the journalist's conduct and the right to bring an action to prevent further damage. And the other really interesting thing about Financial Times and United Kingdom was that it was a unanimous decision of the European Court. Every single judge in the European Court, um, I believe there was 17 of them on this one, came down on the side of the journalists. So a really, arguably, a really strong indication of the direction the court is likely to take in the future of these kinds of cases. So where to from here? I've just got watch this space. The true and lasting impact of the Financial Times judgment on UK case law is yet to be seen. 
And as for where this leaves potential sources and journalists facing this dilemma today, I would argue the situation is very uncertain. And just before I move into sort of my final phase, um, I just wanted to say a word about search and seizure, and this comes back <coughs> to, to your point about the Sonoma case. Um, the Sonoma case of 2010 um, was really important in the sense that the European Court has now declared that any country's domestic law on search and seizure of journalistic materials must contain procedural safeguards to ensure that any decision to confiscate materials is first assessed by an impartial body. Now, in many cases, that means a judge. In most cases, that will mean a judge. Any authorised search of journalistic material must be carried out in such a way that is justified in the circumstance and proportionate to the aims of the investigation. Now, we've seen some examples of this, although it's somewhat limited, in the impartial body in authorising police searches in, under the Police and Criminal Evidence Act in the United Kingdom. Um, not that this prevented um, footage from the London Manchester riots from being handed over to um, criminal investigators. Journalistic material under that Act is regarded as accepted material and police must go to um, a judge to sort of prove their case that such material must be handed over. And once it does, does say it has to be handed over, mm. journalists can't appeal or anything. You can, you, you, look, you could appeal. But it's very unlikely. Yeah. Progress. Yeah. Okay. And now for something completely different. <laughs> Not entirely. But, you know, I initially started looking at this because I, because it, as you'll, as you'll see, Australia's in, a, in quite the legal mess about in, when it comes to source protection. But, um, so my personal interest drove this initially, but it became increasingly... Um, academically significant um, as I continued my um, research. At the risk of giving anyone a geography lesson, Australia is a, a federation consisting of uh, six sovereign states and two territories with all jurisdictions exercising limited lawmaking powers. So the, so the states are to an extent sovereign. Australia has no National Human Rights Act. It is not signatory to any regional human rights court, such as the European <laughs> Court of Human Rights. So, this is not going to be a discussion about human rights. This is not going to be a discussion about freedom of expression. Source protection law in Australia has grown up as a creature of the law of evidence. This is the law that tells us how and in what way evidence can be, pre be presented in court. Like the United Kingdom, Australia has a long history of no or extremely limited source protection legislation. And that, for, I was in the lucky position of that changing in 2011, um, about five months ago. So, journalist source protection law in Australia and New Zealand, for that matter, is a creature of evidence law. Each Australian state, along with the separate Commonwealth jurisdiction, has its own evidence act, has its own set of rules about how evidence is presented in court. And if you want a really, really good night's reading, you can sit down with the seven evidence acts and comb through, comb through them. The one we're going to talk about is the first one, the Evidence Act 1995 of the Commonwealth. We'll come to New South Wales as well. So, the law passed this year in 2011, eloquently titled the Evidence Amendment Journalist Privilege Act Commonwealth 2011, amends the Evidence Act 1995 to create what's called a rebuttable presumption that evidence from journalists will not be required to be given unless the party requesting the evidence can convince the judge 
that the public interest in the disclosure of the evidence outweighs any likely adverse effect of the disclosure on the informant and any person, and the public interest in the communication of the facts and opinion of the public by the news media, and in the ability of the news media to access sources of fact. In that final line there, in the ability of the news media to access sources of fact, I would argue are hints of Goodwin. I think somebody has been reading some European law on, um, on the chill effect. The catch. This was considered a major move in Australia this year that this law was passed. However, it's the Commonwealth Evidence Act. It only applies in federal courts and courts in the Australian Capital Territory, which is the smallest territory in Australia, or one of the smallest <coughs> territories in Australia, under, under matters that fall under the Commonwealth jurisdiction. And we're talking an extremely narrow area of legal interests. Um, co corporations law is one example. The catch is that the states, which are sovereign, need to adopt mirroring legislation for it to have effect in the state courts. Might just go back to my first picture. Um, if I can just move this across. Yeah. These two chaps here, um, Robert Harvey and Michael... Uh, Robert Harvey and Jerry McManus, who were two Melbourne journalists convicted of contempt of court um, under the County Court Act of Victoria, the legislation passed this year would not have helped them. They were, they were convicted under a state act in Victoria. The act we've got here is a Commonwealth Act only applicable in federal jurisdiction courts. Now, the other serious issue with this law is that, like Belgium, it's not often you can put Australia and Belgium in the same category. But they've given a definition to journalists, and that definition is extremely broad. A journalist under this legislation is a person who is engaged and active in the publication and news who may be given information by an informant in the expectation that the inf information may be published in a news medium. You might be thinking, news medium. Whew. News medium is defined as any medium for the dissemination to the public or a section of the public of news and observation on news. Extremely broad definition. It was extremely controversial when it went through, and it remains so for the simple reason that all the states in Australia are trying to pass mirroring legislation and the states are not happy with this definition. So you can be a journalist in one jurisdiction of Australia and you cannot be a journalist in another jurisdiction of Australia. The only state to pass mirroring legislation to date is New South Wales, the Evidence Amendment Journalist Privilege Act 2011 New South Wales. Under that a journalist is a person engaged in the profession or occupation of journalism in connection with the publication of information in a news medium. So what we've seen in Australia this year in the parliamentary hand is a, a revisit of all the articles we've all read about whether or not journalism is a profession, are journalists professionals. And New South Wales has said there is a line between who is a professional journalist and who is not. Now, I wish I could tell you a little bit more than that, but none of this legislation has been tested in the courts yet, so judicial interpretation only stretches so far. But we have this situation where there is a real inconsistency um, over who is a journalist and who is not for the purposes of source protection legislation. So I've just summarised that there. In real terms, the extent to which the broad definition may influence the Judicial Balancing Act remains unknown, and it may be some time until the definition is tested in court. It's been argued... Uh, by a shadow, uh, former Shadow Attorney-General of Australia, no, current rather, that the broader the definition, the more cautious the judge is likely to be in ordering disclosure. So 
the fa this idea that the wider the definition, the more, more cautious the judge is likely to be to allow a journalist to keep information secret in the interests of the administration of justice and having all the information before the courts. So, a quick comparison. As I said, Australian journalist source protection law has evolved largely devoid of any engagement with a human rights-based discussion. By contrast, the European approach in recent years has been intrinsically shaped by a human rights discourse. I've just noted here a few of the benefits of what I think, what I think are the benefits of the human rights approach. The judgments of the European Court put pressure on member states to take a uniform stance in interpreting Article 10. Over time, uniform interpretations promote legal certainty and can set firm boundaries for journalists and lawyers working in the field. It creates an environment for those soft law instruments to develop and they can operate as guidelines for countries drafting new domestic legislation. And a uniform, uniform European approach also accommodates the changing nature of journalism and promotes certainty in an environment where internet media are constantly publishing across various jurisdictions. A downside to this approach is the number of years it takes for the case law patterns to emerge. In many ways, the European Court's interpretations of Article 10 are still emerging more than 15 years since Goodwin. There's been some um, evidence of the Europe, what I've termed the European approach, this human rights-based approach, in the International Criminal Tribunals in the, um, for the former Yugoslavia and the Special Court of Sierra Leone. There's been documentation of those courts um, essentially adopting Goodwin principles um, to allow journalists working in conflict areas to uh, keep their sources of information secret. Best of both worlds, is it possible? Janice Braben's written a really interesting article that I've got the, the reference for at the end. She argues that judicial balancing tests, such as the ones seen in Australia, are best able to protect public interests when judges are encouraged to consider a country's broader commitment to human rights or a constitutional imperative for free speech. She writes, many common law judges need the permission and the discipline of a constitutional imperative or strong presumption in favour of confidential source protection to overcome their commitments to an evidence remedies-based system of justice and crime prevention. So what she says is, this, is an approach where you can have a judicial balancing test, but it's got to be informed by a human rights or a constitutional free speech environment. So part C, which I kept very brief here, is just looking at some of those ongoing dilemmas. There's no doubt that general source protection globally, um, I've concentrated on Australia and Europe here, but globally is going through a period of profound change. The question of defining who is a journalist for the purposes of source legislation in Belgium and Australia may also become an issue for the European Court in the future. The implementation of the Data Retention Directive and other anti-terror and criminal laws is a big issue. And judicial discretion. Just about everything I've read in this area calls for more training of judges, lawyers and journalists on the state of source protection law and how it operates. So my final thought on this is I am an Australian trained lawyer, so I hate to bring it home, but there's a great quote by Justice Windier of the Australian High Court who famously remarked in relation to the pace of medical law that the law marches with medicine but in the rear and limping a little. And I think that the same might be said of the way that the law has kept pace with the need for journalist source protection. Going forward, the concern for the pace of reform is twofold. The law must keep step with the evolution of new technologies and how it impacts the delivery of journalistic work to the public. And the law needs to align itself with the employment structure of news media companies and notions of professionalism in journalism itself. 
I've argued that to limp behind, as it were, will only exacerbate the current uncertainty in this field of law and hinder the role the journalists play in serving the public interest. So that brings me to the conclusion of my study. I've got there some, re some key references um, that I used in the course of this work that if you're interested in um, reading, um, I would strongly recommend. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you.